TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling. A sea of silence. A sea that teaches immortality and peace. A sea that forgives and forgets. A sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 3, Rise of Slime, featuring Lisa Ann Gershwin. Five million years ago, the ocean was dominated by jellyfish. Thanks to us, humans, they might dominate the ocean again. I'm Ingo Niemann, a speculative writer most recently of the book Mare Amores. And today I'm talking to Lisa N. Gershwin, a marine biologist with a unique dedication and enthusiasm for jellyfish. She speaks from her home in Tasmania. I am a marine biologist. I have a PhD in jellyfish, of all things and a writer, and uh, someone who's very fond of jellyfish, actually. How did your relationship to the ocean evolve as a kid? Um, I was almost nine, and uh, I went with my third grade class to a marine museum in Los Angeles called the Cabrillo Marine Museum. And all the other kids were absolutely fascinated with the whales and the dolphins and all that And, you know, I was over there looking at the hermit crabs and, you know, the octopus and all that. I was just fascinated with the marine invertebrates, the animals without backbones. And I actually decided on that day that I was going to grow up and be a marine biologist. And I was absolutely certain that that was my life, that that was my fate. And, um, you know, my mom would get books from the library and we would watch Jacques Cousteau when he came on TV and all that stuff. And, you know, I was absolutely on the fast track to be a marine biologist. Um, but then, I don't know, life got in the way and um, I went off and did other things, but I never lost the love of the ocean or of marine invertebrates, obviously. So here I am. <laughs> Could you describe this fascination? Yeah, so I think of my fascination with jellyfish as kind of an epic love affair 
to me, my fascination with jellies isn't just the science, although they are incredibly, unbelievably interesting scientifically, of course. Um, but it's more than that. It's the aesthetics and it's, they're beautiful and they're mesmerizing and, and they're so strange, you know, so, so strange. And I'm just fascinated with that. And, um, and I also love the idea, um, it's kind of like being a modern day explorer. You know, it's an incredibly thrilling thing when you discover new knowledge and uh, kind of, I don't know, it's like a legal version of heroin, you know, <laughs> like it's completely socially acceptable, uh, but probably just as addictive. When it comes to jellyfish, you really are a discoverer. Yeah, you discovered how many different species, like 200 or more? Yeah, so, um, uh, well, 217 species all up, but only 216 are jellyfish. Uh, the other one, it's a dolphin. How do you discover jellyfish? Well, it's really easy in a way. I mean, opportunity favors the prepared mind, right? Um, do you do scuba diving or, I mean, jellyfish, they're not, not very stable. How is the documentation? You take photos. Um... So you're right. They're not very stable. They're very floppy in the literal and figurative sense. So I don't usually scuba dive for new species or, you know, when I'm sampling an area, I don't know if I'll find a new species or not. Um, but, you know, when I'm doing studies like that, I generally prefer to be above the water, not in the water, because I just find that I have more control over what I can see and where I can place my net. So I usually work from either um, a boat or a big ship or a jetty or yeah, whatever. And um, when I uh, pull up species, I have a real gift. This is kind of awkward to talk about because it's, I mean, I do think it's a real gift, but I think it's related to my Asperger's. Yeah. So I have this sort of, I guess you could call it like a filing card system in my head or like a flashcard system or something. And I've never tried to do it, just did itself. But I, I have a picture in my head of every jellyfish species and character of every jellyfish. And so when I see one, I can kind of just like in my head and, you know, right away I can sort of superimpose the one that I'm looking at with what I've seen before. And so I can tell right away, oh, you know, there's the wrong number of that or the wrong ratio of that or, you know, whatever. And so right away I can see the similarities and differences of what's in front of me. I can't remember my left from my right, and I can't remember, you know, doctor's appointments and stuff like that, but but I can remember jellyfish. I can't remember people, but I can remember jellyfish. So when I pull up jellyfish in a net, then I start looking through this process of, okay, seen you before, seen you before, seen you before. Ooh, you look interesting, you know, that kind of thing. And so depending on the size If something's really small, and a lot of the stuff I work with is really, really small, so I'll put them under 
uh, microscope, uh, a dissecting microscope, um, which is kind of a low power microscope. And yeah, I'll just have a look and I'll obviously take some photos while they're whizzing around under the scope. And um, I usually try to do the description while the animal is still alive in front of me. Just makes it easier to go through character by character and know that I'm actually looking at all of the characters and I'm seeing them at their very best. And I'm sure again, that's the Asperger's coming through, but I'm very methodical in how I do a description. And I I try to have the complete description done before I actually preserve the specimen. And they do need to be preserved and lodged in a museum. There has to be what we call type specimens. And, you know, those are the primary reference specimens. And do you observe them as well over an expanded period of time? Not really, because most jellyfish in captivity don't live very long. I mean, we see them, you know, looking so beautiful in aquariums, you know, absolutely stunning. But those have usually been raised that way, not transplanted from the wild into the aquarium. There's exceptions, but yeah, most of them don't do so well. And certainly in a Petri dish, yeah, forget it. You know, they just, you know, if you leave them overnight, you come back and you go, ew. Like, um, I mean, these are really delicate organisms. They're very, very simple. And their skin, as we would think of it, is only one cell layer thick. How many species of jellyfish have been discovered in total? The last figure I saw was something on the order of a few thousand, and that's including, you know, ones from a long, long time ago that sometimes they're considered distinct species and sometimes they're not because, you know, species get merged and unmerged and merged back again and then unmerged again and split into two and, you know, all kinds of things with different sort of species recognition criteria and different paradigms. Um, There's another thing that affects that number, which is how narrow or broad one is actually going with the definition of jellyfish. So to some workers, um, the concept of jellyfish is very, very narrow. And to them, it's only maybe 100 species. Other people, it's very, very broad. I tend to go very broad. So for me, there's maybe four main really different groups that I consider to be jellyfish. There's what we call medusae. Um, That's the, you know, the jellyfish looking jellyfish, you know, sort of dome shaped pulsates, tentacles hanging down, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's siphonophores, which are like the long stingy stringy thingies and, you know, the blue bottles and the Portuguese man of war and, you know, these kind of things. I mean, incredibly, wow, wow, such amazing creatures. Um, But they're colonial and they're really strange and their biology and ecology are completely different from the medusae. Um, but they are actually highly derived medusae. So I include those with jellyfish and then comb jellies, 
comb, like comb your hair. Um, comb jellies are in a completely different phylum, but they are very jellyfishy. They don't sting, but other than that, they're very, very jellyfishy in, you know, their habits and habitats and all that. And then there's another type of creature that I include um, called salps. S-A-L-P, or plural, salps. And these are just the most mind-blowing things you can imagine. They're these little barrel-shaped organisms, um, and they're colonial, so they're kind of stuck together. And they go through the water in these strips or circles or wheels or, you know, whatever. They sort of have a look and feel of jellyfish, but they're really distantly related they're actually in our phylum. So they're actually more closely related to us, to humans, than they are to the other types of jellyfish. But they have the habits and habitats of jellyfish. So different workers include different numbers. But anyway, I mean, when you're looking at a few thousand, it really doesn't matter because those would be included or excluded and it still wouldn't change the number because it's the medusae that are so dominant. You mentioned uh, your Asperger's. Do you think It not just helps you with classifying um, jellyfish, but also in gaining interest in them in the first place? Oh, certainly. They are absolutely my Aspergian special interest. You know, um, people on the spectrum are sort of notorious for having special interests in something, It's, you know, bordering on obsession. And sometimes the interests are pretty weird. Like, I consider myself really fortunate that it was jellyfish instead of like barbed wire or something, because I mean, it could have been, you know, um, I mean, most people think jellyfish are pretty fringe, but they're kind of having a renaissance right now, which is great. But when I first started working with jellyfish, they really were pretty fringe. And, you know, I used to get some pretty funny looks from people, you know, people would say, oh, so what do you work on? And I would say jellyfish and they would just go, oh, and that's it. Like absolute conversation killer. So now, you know, I say I work on jellyfish and people go, oh, wow, that's so amazing. Hey, I was wondering, da, 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 da. And so now instead of being a conversation killer, it's actually a conversation um, starter or a keeping the conversation going, you know? So yeah, I mean, times have definitely changed in the last 30 years, but I've always liked things that are kind of the underdog or um, just different, you know, just different. Like when I was a little kid, my friends had dogs and cats and things like that. Well, I had a bat and I had a sidewinder. It's a type of rattlesnake. And I, I had some other weird things too, like salamanders and just things. But, um, you know, like I always had the sort of pets that nobody loved. So I think it's probably inevitable that, you know, cold, jiggly, brainless, spineless jellyfish were the thing that was going to attract not just my attention, but my affection. I do love them. What can I say? <laughs> Many species are really small, but Right, the first jellyfish discovery that you made was a pretty big one. Pretty big indeed. Yeah, it was actually the largest invertebrate that was discovered in the 20th century. So imagine how proud I am of my baby. <laughs> 
that, but I, I've discovered small ones too, I should say, very small ones. Um, I think my smallest one at the moment was about, maybe about a millimeter. Your first discovery, how big is it? The dome part, the body, is a meter across. And the fleshy, hanging down bits in the middle, called oral arms, uh, get to be uh, about eight meters long. And the tentacles are even longer, but of course, they're highly contractile and extensile. So it really is a phenomenally gigantic animal. And it stings, by the way. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, not lethally, but, but nonetheless, it'll get your attention. And it's the color of a fine burgundy wine. It's just the most dreamy, beautiful color. You discovered this creature near Los Angeles, right? <laughs> um, and it wasn't near Los Angeles. It was literally at Los Angeles, Harbor Beach. Literally, this thing was found in LA. And so there's a significance to this that I think is really worth thinking about. So here's this gigantic animal, uh, and it's not invisible. I mean, this thing is, you know, fully in your face. You can't miss it. You know, it's the elephant in the room, right? It's this huge, huge, colorful thing. And it was new to science in 1997 at Los Angeles. So LA has got UCLA, USC, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, you know, Cabrillo Marine Aquarium, you know, it's got all these, you know, research institutions, plus lots and lots of other colleges and universities and everything. I mean, it, it's like a mecca for scientists. And yet here was this gigantic animal, so conspicuous, that was not recognized as a new species until 1997. And to me, that speaks volumes about, you know, we have all these fantasies about going to Mars and, you know, setting up camp on Jupiter and, you know, whatever. And I mean, and, and I, I mean, I'm fascinated with space just like anybody else, you know, going to the moon and all this. But I guess my point is, there's so much yet to discover here And we're setting our sights so far away and quite frankly, missing what's right in front of us. Because if you can miss a huge, like meter in diameter, eight meter long purple cylinder of sting, you can miss anything. Not just that jellyfish look really amazingly, they also have amazing abilities Immortal jellyfish, right? Uh, Self-digesting jellyfish. Um. Yeah, so no, 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 it's true. I mean, jellyfish are beautiful. Let's face it. They are exquisitely beautiful creatures and, you know, very mesmerizing to look at. And, you know, I mean, I think they'd be the perfect thing for like a dentist's office or something, you know. Um, but their biology and ecology is, what can I say, full-blown weird. So yeah, there's the immortal jellyfish. I mean, come on. Never once I feel comfortable saying, did anyone ever think that immortality would be discovered in a jellyfish? So it's really fascinating how that works. Um, the jellyfish 
dies and, you know, like anything else, you know, it's dead. It starts disintegrating and sort of, you know, decaying away. Uh, but then the cells, instead of completely rotting and turning to mush, the cells actually re-aggregate into an alternate life form. So jellyfish have this really weird life cycle that's not like anything that we're used to. So the medusa, when it has babies, they grow up to look like a polyp, like a little tiny sea anemone or like a little coral polyp that's stuck to rocks and shells and, you know, whatever. So the medusa has babies that grow up to be polyps and the polyp has babies that grow up to be medusae. And so it has this really weird alternation of its generations. And the immortal jellyfish, when the medusa dies and disintegrates, it actually comes back as a polyp. The cells reaggregate not into another medusa, but into a polyp. And then that polyp can then have baby jellyfish. And so goes the cycle of immortality. It's absolutely mind-blowing. But, you know, other jellyfish do really amazing stuff. Like one of the hands-down pestiests of all pests known, like, like the world's most wanted pest. Um, it's a comb jelly named Nemeopsis ladii. Um, Nemeopsis, it's something like um, it can reproduce within 13 days of its own birth. And it can have like 10,000 babies a day. And it eats something like three times its own body weight in food every day. Hence the reason it grows so fast. And it's a simultaneous hermaphrodite, which means that it's both male and female at the same time. And it can fertilize itself. So it can fertilize others too, but it doesn't need to. If there's nobody else to have sex with, it just has sex with itself. And so Nemeopsis is native to the eastern seaboard of North America, and it was accidentally introduced into the Black Sea in Eastern Europe. And from there, it just went absolutely nuts. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like... Within just a few years of being introduced into the Black Sea, Nemeopsis so completely dominated the food chain that it was 95% of the biomass in the Black Sea was just this one species of jellyfish. Think about that. Try to wrap your head around. That means it ate all the eggs and larvae of every other species. It ate the food that the larvae would eat and... By eating all of the eggs and larvae and the plankton, everything up the food chain died off. But then, strangely enough, its predator, its main predator, actually, um, another comb jelly called Baroe, was inadvertently introduced in another ship's ballast water. And all of a sudden, Baroe went absolutely bananas and grazed down a lot of the Nemeopsis. But what ended up happening, it wasn't just Baroe that did it, but um, the fishermen, because the fisheries collapsed, obviously, with Nemeopsis eating all the fish. And so this actually gave the fish a chance to come back a little bit and eat 
Nemeopsis. And then by random chance, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, the subsidies for the fertilizers to the farmers stopped. So the nutrient input to the Black Sea simultaneously slowed way down. So these three things all happened at the same time and served to actually kind of hit Nemeopsis on the head a bit. Um, so it, it got down into uh, manageable numbers. It, it's still there. I mean, it's just this diaphanous little nothing about the size of your clenched fist. And yet it just took over the Black Sea. And then it wasn't even content staying in the Black Sea. It got out of the Black Sea and it went into the Mediterranean and it went into the Baltic and the North Sea and all of this. And it's been just eating its way through Europe. I'm telling you, it really is the pestiest of pests. You got to love it. You got to be fascinated with something that is that enormously bad. But is it really bad? I mean, they're just eating and procreating, not, you know, <laughs> they're not particularly evil. Well, it's true. Bad from a very human point of view, not bad from its point of view. We want to catch fish that we can eat and we want to have lots of biodiversity. So, you know, there's fish and invertebrates and seals and seabirds and, you know, we want all that biodiversity and, you know, so we, the, the values that we have about what a good ocean is and a good member of, you know, the marine community, um, by our values, it's kind of a homicidal dictator, actually. <laughs> so do you think that jellyfish are on the rise? Yes and no. So um, there's a lot of debate about this very question, are jellyfish on the rise? And there's several ways of looking at it because it's not just a blanket yes or no. Like so many things in science and in the natural world, it's kind of a, well, yeah, but, or, you know, like it's a multifaceted answer. So let me see if I can sort of unpack this. Um, it's pretty consistently agreed among all people working in the jellyfish space, that in disturbed ecosystems, jellyfish really take advantage of these disturbed ecosystems. They're actually a visible indicator that something is out of balance, but they're also a driver of more imbalance. So they really have it down pat about how to, um, shall we say, get a tentacle in the door when, you know, something's a bit wrong. I mean, look, there's lots of species that do that. Any sort of weedy species, whether it's weedy plants or weedy animals, I mean, cockroaches, rats, you know, crows. So there's nothing particularly strange about organisms exploiting disturbance, but jellyfish really do that quite well. Not every jellyfish, by the way, um, some species of jellyfish are probably going extinct. Um, but you know, some species really are quite good at exploiting disturbed ecosystems. But so what about the parts of the world that aren't so disturbed? Because that's where I guess the question of are jellyfish on the rise really becomes the debated 
part there. But if you back away from the global question, and like I said, you just look at the disturbed ecosystems, you do get a fairly strong signal about the more disturbed an ecosystem is, the more likely it is to be more disturbed by more jellyfish. Um, but as we keep disturbing more ecosystems and disturbing ecosystems more, um, I think we can reasonably hypothesize that we may be seeing more and more jellyfish as we're changing the oceans to be more hospitable to jellyfish. I mean, we're doing it. So if we don't like it, we should kind of point the finger back at ourselves. But, you know, they're just doing what they do. They're just living their lives, exploiting ecosystems where they can, because that's what they do. There could be a conspiracy theory that it's jellyfish who came up with humans because everything that we do, they profit from it, like from everything, overfishing, global warming, plastic trash, acidification of the ocean. God, wouldn't that be a great sci-fi, like a, a, a book or a movie that, you know, we are just their handmaidens, you know? Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> You know, with no joking at all, um, we are making their lives easier. That's for sure. So I don't think it's by their design that we're making their lives easier. But gosh, they should send us a thank you letter because we really are helping them. <laughs> And look, um, I'm involved in a really interesting modeling study that uh, it's not published yet. But the interesting take-home message of this study is that all roads lead to jellyfish. So no matter what you do to exploit the marine ecosystem, everything leads to increased jellyfish. Jeremy Jackson called it the rise of slime. He's a very smart man. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really quite mind-blowing to think about. But, you know, as we take more and more fish out then the jellyfish are the last man standing. They benefit because there's less competition taking away their food. Um, as we warm up the water, boy, they love that. They just really grow like weeds and, you know, it amps up their metabolism and they grow faster and they eat more and they live longer. And, you know, they just love eutrophication or, you know, too much nutrients. They love that because um, the sort of situation of too much nutrients leads to hypoxia or low oxygen and everything else dies and the jellyfish are just doing their thing you know it, everything even coastal construction it just gives the polyp stages a place to settle and grow and um i mean just everything like you know introduced species we're taking them around the world free you know they don't have to pay for a plane ticket or a, a ship ticket we just take them wherever we're going, it's just astonishing how adaptable they are to these different damages that we're doing uh, to the oceans. But if you think about it, um, jellyfish have had half a billion to a billion years of practice of surviving. And while all these other species that have ever lived have come and gone and, you know, evolved and 
um, you know, grown shells and, um, you know, grown bones and, you know, walked on land and walked upright and hung from trees and grown feathers and learned to fly and, you know, all these incredible evolutionary advancements that have led to all of the incredible, incredible biodiversity that we see in the world around us. Jellyfish have been there since the beginning of all that. And while all these other species have evolved and gone extinct, jellyfish have just stayed the way they are. They still look the way they always did. They still function the way they always did because it works. They literally haven't had to change. And they've just gotten really, really good at surviving just the way they are. Jellyfish came into existence way before the Cambrian explosion, right? Yes, way before. So the current uh, sort of accepted date that jellyfish date back to is the Ediacaran period of the late Precambrian. Uh, that's about... Uh, 565, 585 million years ago. So certainly they had to have evolved before that. And when you look at their DNA and you can kind of create these, uh, what we call molecular clocks, and you can actually sort of figure out how long it would take the DNA to change that much and whatever. And so they've actually been molecularly clocked at about a billion years old, And a few years back, I kid you not, um, I, I just, I'm still giddy with excitement when I think about it. Um, I found three specimens of Medusa fossils uh, or Medusoid fossils, I guess I should say, because I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know that they were Medusias, but boy, they sure look pretty Medusa to me, you know. Um, anyway, I found three specimens of Medusoid fossils in deposits that are a billion years old. So certainly they go way before that. No idea how far before, but these are just incredible fossils, incredible. So yeah, it's a very, very old lineage. What did the ocean look like back then? There were no cephalopods yet, no? fish, of course not, algae. What was it like? There was not a lot of oxygen. Yeah, no, all those came later. Um, you know, if we're right about the jellyfish going back that far, and it does certainly look pretty convincing, that would have been the dominant thing that you would see. There would have been some funny little kind of algae-ish sort of creatures, but not algae the way that we know them today. Um, there were some sort of stringy things and um, little sort of like strings of pearls. And then there were some other little filament things. And, uh, and then there were some little um, tower things that are just these little sort of bacterial mats that live on these little towers. I mean, there were organisms in the water um, and organisms on the bottom, but nothing with legs, no worms, um, no crustaceans, no mollusks, no octopus, no fish. Well, fish came way, way, way later. Um, nothing on land, no plants. Um, you know, yeah, nothing that we would recognize as like plants or animals. Nothing with faces, nothing with eyes, 
nothing with legs, nothing with bones, nothing with a heart or lungs or nothing like that. So just jellyfish and a few little stringy things. What are jellyfish? I think we haven't spoken about this yet. Like, How do you define a jellyfish? <laughs> oh, gosh, what is a jellyfish? It's one of those sort of things that... Um, Like, you know it when you see it, right? Um, so in my definition, a jellyfish is a gelatinous organism that um, usually uh, drifts in the water. So it might be able to swim, uh, might be able to swim against a current to some extent, or it may be completely at the mercy of currents. Most of them are definitely at the mercy of currents. It might have stages that are stuck to the bottom, but it wouldn't usually have its whole life stage stuck to the bottom. Although there are a few species of things we call jellyfish that have evolved to be completely stuck to the bottom. But yeah, so in my definition, they're usually drifting or swimming. And I guess, you know, the sort of dominant thing is they uh, have the look and feel of jelly. You know, they're, they're very gelatinous. Um, although most jellyfish have an alternate life stage that's not gelatinous and not drifting. So the definition doesn't hold in all cases. You know, it's, uh, pardon the pun, it's a very floppy definition. What about the ability to sting? Is this something that unites them? That's a good question. So in my very broad definition, not all jellyfish sting. So it just depends on where you draw the delineation of what is a jellyfish. Um, for example, all of the medusae sting except one species that actually evolutionarily lost the ability to sting. Some of them sting more, some of them sting less, but they all have the stinging cells. But other groups like the comb jellies and the salps, um, they don't even have the hardware to sting. Um, I forgot siphonophores, the really weirdest, weirdest of all the jellyfish groups. Um, they sting fiercely. Let me tell you, they they pack a real wallop. Are jellyfish the first creatures that develop this ability to sting? Um, corals and sea anemones, it looks like they actually evolved before jellyfish, and they sting too. So in that case, no, jellyfish are not the earliest evolved stingy organisms, um, but certainly the... Uh, what we call the phylum cnidaria, which is the jellyfish and the corals and the sea anemones and the hydroids and the sea pens and, you know, all of those things. The cnidaria all sting. And actually the name cnidaria, which has a silent C at the beginning, um, the nida part, it's Greek for stinging cell. Corals and jellyfish, aren't they basically the same? Yeah, just upside down from each other. Well, if you mentally take that off the rock and you put it the other way around so that the tentacles are hanging down, well, that's a jellyfish. You've got that bowl with the tentacles around the edge and the mouth in the middle. 
that's a jellyfish. So they are very, very closely related, and they're very similar in terms of their form and function, but one is stuck to the rock on its head, basically, and the other is just drifting around the seas. So they're quite similar, but quite different. And this being stuck of the corals, is this what makes them less dangerous or even beneficial to the ecosystem as we know it? Why is that? Boy, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's maybe corals take a really, really long time to grow, you know, because they have to calcify and then, you know, kind of grow more calcified tissue and you know that takes time and so corals are very very slow growing um and i think that kind of buffers their ability to be really really pesty and of course they are stuck to rocks and things which kind of confines them in a particular place you know so they can't just sort of go around and cause problems um jellyfish on the other hand are problematic a lot of the time um but i think again that's because they respond so rapidly to whatever's going on in the ocean and then they bloom into these super abundances and then they cause all kinds of problems from there whether it's um you know, eating the eggs and larvae of fish and other organisms, plus the plankton that the larvae would eat, or whether it's, you know, getting into fish gills and killing the fish. I mean, they're not trying to kill the fish. It just happens. Um, or, you know, in the case of problems for us, you know, getting sucked into power plants or sucked into ships or stinging us, obviously, they cause all kinds of problems. But I think that's more because, you know, they have this rapid response life cycle, whereas the corals don't do this whole bloom thing in the same way. So it's the super abundances of the jellyfish that are causing the problems. I mean, one jellyfish can sting, of course. But, you know, one jellyfish can't disable a super trawler or uh, disable a power plant. Do you feel sometimes conflicted? On the one side, you love jellyfish, and on the other side, you're in this warning position? I guess I should, but I think I'm more fascinated than conflicted. I mean, on the one hand, I truly do love jellyfish. I am... You know, they just make my heart go all melty. But on the other hand, I do recognize the problems they cause. I mean, you know, they literally kill people and they literally kill livelihoods. But you can manage them, you know, and you can manage them actually quite easily. So I guess I don't have any anger or animosity towards jellyfish for doing the damage they do that's more directed at us and i'm not scared of jellyfish i mean i'm well aware that you know some of them sting like hell i mean the world's most venomous animal is a jellyfish so i'm a little bit scared of you know the really really venomous ones maybe scared isn't the right term i think i just have a very very healthy respect for them I just think it's amazing that this spineless, brainless blob with no visible means of support can end people's lives and ruin people's livelihoods and, you know, scare tourists away from entire regions and, you know, disable 
nuclear super carriers and shut down power plants that decades of activists have tried so hard to get shut down. And, you know, all of these problems that jellyfish are causing, um, I'm just fascinated with it. Have you ever been stung badly? Yes, kind of. So I've actually been stung experimentally by um, the Australian box jellyfish, which is widely regarded as the world's most venomous animal. And the sting is ferociously painful. It, it feels like boiling oil. It is phenomenally painful. Um, I've also been stung by Irukandjis twice, two different species. They cause an illness that is like nothing you can imagine. It, it's just fully the weirdest, weirdest thing. It's this incredibly debilitating illness. Um, but miraculously, I didn't actually get the Irukandji syndrome, the illness that typically goes with them. Um, the fiercest sting I've ever had was a blue bottle, which is kind of a little miniature version of a Portuguese man of war. And wowza, wowza, do those things sting like far out. That is really painful. So, and not just painful, but, um, you know, like I remember this one time I was stung just, um, on my left hand, on my ring finger, just right kind of at the base between my fingers, just that delicate skin on the inside, just a little bit of a flick there. And, um, I actually went back to my car and I was sitting in the driver's seat holding my left arm with my right hand and arm and rocking back and forth in such incredible agony for about 30 minutes from this sting. Uh, that's how painful it was. Um, you said that it's kind of easy to manage the amount of jellyfish in the ocean. Um, of course, we can stop <laughs> climate change. We can stop overfishing but i mean we we could on paper <laughs> what short-term interventions more local interventions could have an impact yeah look it's a really interesting question i mean you know certainly uh a lot of governments and a lot of scientists have been asking this very same question and basically what it looks like right now is Once you've actually allowed the ecosystem or any ecosystem, I should say, um, to get to such a point that it's dominated by jellyfish, there's probably nothing you can do at that point. Like it's actually flipped to being dominated so that jellyfish are the top predator. It's actually changed so comprehensively at that point that you actually can't eradicate the jellyfish anymore and restore the ecosystem to what it used to be. And we've got several examples of these around the world and they're really stable. But before that happens, you know, when an ecosystem hasn't yet flipped to being dominated by jellyfish, I guess it would be about noticing that the ecosystem is in distress And really having a good hard look at that and saying, all right, what are the major pressures, you know, on this ecosystem? And, you know, what can we do about that? 
So what we find is that the ecosystems that are most badly affected by jellyfish typically have multiple pressures. So it's not just climate change. It's climate change and overfishing and eutrophication, or, you know, maybe it's overfishing and um, coastal construction or whatever. What do you think of uh, efforts to reintroduce uh, natural enemies of the jellyfish, like turtles? I think they tried this at the Canary Islands. Yeah, I was just going to say the Canary Islands. So I actually don't know how that's going. I haven't followed up on it lately to see if it's working or not working. Um, I mean, I would imagine it would work really well, um, but you'd have to do it in such a way that the turtles aren't uh, being poached. But, um, you know, certainly... Um, there's a lot of species that eat jellyfish. I mean, quite famously turtles, of course, but also penguins and seabirds and a lot of different species of fish and some crabs quite famously eat jellyfish. So, you know, there's a lot of different species that will feed on them if they can. But the problem is there's so many jellyfish and so few crabs so few turtles so few penguins in comparison um many people often ask the question why don't we just eat them it's not quite that simple so humans have been eating jellyfish for more than 5,000 years many of the asian cuisines consider jellyfish to be a delicacy but the problem is not all jellyfish species are equally edible. So something like Nemeopsis, for example, some of the really flimsy, watery species, um, if you tried to uh, pick them up in a net, they just go, bloop, 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 you know, they, they just melt right through the net. But There's another aspect of harvesting jellyfish for food. And so the problem is you're not actually giving the fish a chance. When you net the jellyfish, it just nets whatever's there. You can't attract them to a hook and bait. You know, it doesn't work that way with jellyfish. You have to net them. So if there's any fish there, they get netted too. Um, there's another aspect of this, which is that if you do successfully net out the jellyfish with the intention of giving the fish a chance, what you're actually doing, unless you're addressing the issue that's leading to the jellyfish in the first place, then you take out the jellyfish, you're just giving the next pest in line a, a chance. Do you think there's anything we can learn from jellyfish? Like, should we also become more slimy or I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can become slimy. Um, I mean, not literally, you know, but I guess if we sort of stand back and look at the general sort of jellyfishness, you know, the taking advantage of an opportunity kind of thing. Um, I think we're actually pretty good at that. So maybe we actually are, kind of jellyfishy. Um, do you think jellyfish have consciousness? No, I don't. But and some, let me explain let's that. Let's say like a, like a box jellyfish. I mean, 
they have eyes, they are hunters. I mean, they're a bit like the octopus of their jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So let me kind of break this down. So, so most jellyfish, no, like nothing going on there, right? You know, seriously, they're just, you know, going on about their thing, drifting around the seas of the world, you know, just kind of moseying along doing their thing. Um, box jellies and irukandjis are a whole different ball of wax. They really are the octopus of the sort of squishy world, you know? So they have really well-developed eyes with lenses and retinas and corneas like our eyes. And they see like we see. So here's the kicker of it though. They don't have a brain and I'm not being unkind. I'm being honest. They literally, scientifically, biologically do not have a brain. So the brain, as we know it, evolved after the jellyfish. There's a type of tissue layer in embryos uh, called the mesoderm. So jellyfish don't have a mesoderm. The mesoderm evolved after jellyfish. But we know that they see... And we know that they react in predictable ways. Um, they navigate, they have courtship, they hunt, they have mate recognition. Um, you know, they, they do really sophisticated visual behaviors, but we can't quite figure out how they do it because there's no central control system. It's dispersed or, well, we don't even know what it is, but we know that they think. So back to your question, do they have cognition? Look, uh, yes, they navigate, they copulate, they see, and they think, and they can, um, yeah. Do they anticipate? I don't know, probably not. Uh, do they contemplate their own mortality? Probably not. Uh, do they feel pain? I don't know. Um, do they plan? Probably not. Um, so look, I, I don't know quite how cognitive they are. I mean, I've never really run a jellyfish IQ test before. Um, boy, wouldn't that be fun? They definitely have cognition, but I'm not sure... Uh, to what extent and and it's not like we understand did you ever like in an encounter with a jellyfish have the impression there is something like a communication going on eye contact no not really so i mean i've looked straight into the eye of a box jellyfish and i mean i never felt like it was looking back at me and recognizing me and or anything like that. I mean, I think it just, if anything, it was just like, <laughs> you know, kind of like, oh my God, what's that ghastly thing looking at me? You know, because I mean, I'm obviously much, much bigger, but um, yeah, like um, we do know that there's at least one species where the males are able to recognize spots on the females when they're 
um, mature and ready to reproduce. Um, kind of a signal like, hey, hey, over here, I'm ready, you know. But other than that, I not sure about communication. Uh, I mean, I have seen and read about um, sort of cooperative hunting, but I don't think what I've seen would be quite so much, hey, you go over there and I'll go over here and we'll meet in the middle, you know, on the other side. I don't think it was like that. I think it was just that one went that way and that one went that way. And by the grace of God, they were able to get the crab on the other side, you know? Yeah. That's one of the exciting things about, you know, working with an organism with a type of cognition of some sort that's unlike anything we understand. So I am rather humble about it thinking, oh, well, there's probably stuff going on there that I don't understand at all. So, you know, rather than forcing my own, um, you know, saying, all right, well, it has to be this way because this is how it is. I rather just listen, you know, I just think it's so cool that they don't have a brain, but they think, you know, it's weird. This was the third episode of Ocean Wants, featuring Lisa Ann Gershwin. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.